Good news, I just found my Bible. It's under my pulpit. For those of you who don't know me well, don't worry. I'm not trying to be a cool pastor. I've got a little bit of a light condition, and I've got a wicked migraine, so I'm going to preach with my sunglasses. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you um, for this time together, Lord. I ask that you, would, um, that you would come, that you would speak through me, that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. Lord, that, um, that you would just, as we continue our series on and first John, that, um, that you would open our hearts to what you have for us, Lord, that you would um, that you would just teach us from this incredible apostle. Lord, that you would teach us about love, that you would teach us about the love of God that you would continue to just drill into our hearts and our minds and our souls, that you would uh, expose those things that need to come out, that you would help John to lay that healing balm on our wounds and to drive out the darknesses, to shape us, to mold us, to grow us into better believers. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was reading something from Chuck Colson in The Body. Uh, many Christians have been infected, and I think we've got it on the screen. You can put it on there, Joy, if it's up there. Um, many Christians have been infected with the most virulent virus of modern American life, radical individualism. They concentrate on personal obedience to Christ as if all that matters is Jesus and me. But in doing so, they miss the point. For Christianity is not a solitary belief system. Any genuine resurgence of Christianity, as history demonstrates, depends on a reawakening and renewal of that which is in essence, which is the essence of the faith. The people of God, the new society, the body of Christ, which is made manifest in the world, the church. So individualism is indeed a struggle, I think, for most of us as believers. I don't know if you've struggled with that, but I think most of us at some point or another struggle with that. And really the rubber meets the road when we run into church authority. We all think that we like church authority. We all think that we want to be part of a church until we disagree with the church. Or until we've done something wrong and the church needs to bring church authority upon us or upon someone we like or we love. And then that's when we find out how individualistic we are. That's when we find out how individualistic other people are. Now, I'm not talking about when your church is in sin, when a church is openly rejecting the gospel. There are times when the church is saying, you know, Jesus isn't the Son of God, that there are many ways to heaven. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when the church is within her rights and we're simply disagreeing with something. The 39 articles tell us that 
as long as the church is not saying something that is against the gospel, she has the right to set certain limits and boundaries. For instance, the time of worship on Sunday morning. If the church sets that time, Christians are commanded to be there. Right? Not to forsake the assembly. And yet, many Christians don't want to be there. Now, we had a pandemic. We understand a little bit of that, but at least watch it on television. But many Christians would say, I don't need to be there. I can worship God on my own. The pandemic has kind of exposed that, right? I started watching on television, and now I can have a church of one or a family on my own. I don't need to be in the church. One of our church fathers said, without the church, there is no salvation. He didn't mean that the church saved you, but that we as a Christian are worshiping as a body, and apart from that body, we are not worshiping. What does he mean by that? The epistles were written to y'all because Paul was a good southerner, or youth guys, if he was a northerner. It's a plural. It's not written to you singular. And yet we as Americans often think that it was written to me as a singular. It's about I. And if I disagree with things, I can pick up my toys and go home. And that's what Chuck Colson is talking about. When we disagree, we find out that we are consumers at heart. We're really about the I instead of the we. And definitely not about the he. And what I mean by he is God. Unless he makes me feel good in whatever choices I make. Or if you're the kind of person who likes the church to make you feel guilty, then unless he makes you feel appropriately guilty, I suppose. Chuck Colson points out that this is one of the abiding, this individualism is one of the abiding characteristic sins of American Christianity. It's one of the reasons that we have such an astonishing number of non-denominational churches and so many different denominations, right? When I was at RTS, they used to say wherever there are two Presbyterians, there are three churches, Anglicans have also begun to break up. Baptists are breaking up. It's happening all over the place. Even in our Anglican church, people don't like discipline, and they begin to run from it. Even in the confines of now a biblical ACNA, when our bishops bring discipline, we see people running from it. Why? Because at the end of the day, I am an individualist. I don't want the discipline. Look, I don't like some things that my bishops do, but at the end of the day, I am a man under authority. As are you. We are all called to be under authority. And yet, in our country, we have a large group of believers that simply floats from one church to another with relatively zero commitment to any church or body of believers. And this has led to a massive decline in the faith that is occurring rapidly in our society. We'll have to be very intentional, not only about evangelizing the culture as believers, as Mike just talked to us about, but recommitting ourselves to, as believers to the things of God if we are going to reverse this trend. 
We're going to have to think differently as believers if we're going to turn this around. We must become very intentional about developing our faith walks and the body of Christ. And it just so happens that the body of Christ is the church. We have to be intentional about building the church. It is a we, not an I. This rugged individualist Christianity must be put to death for the Christianity that is described in Scripture. And part of the way forward is described in our epistle passage this morning. Let's look at 1 John 2, 15-17. It says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves agapes the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I put some ambitious scriptures in there I was going to hit today. I can't hit all of this. Here's the problem with John. He's way deeper than I am. He is a very sharp cookie, and I can't hit everything today. I need a lot of time to preach this passage. I told you, as I've become older as a pastor, Marshall, my friend here, and Jessica's wife, is a little bit younger, um, but he may be sharper than I am, but he'll know. As we become older as pastors, John becomes just more and more attractive because he is so deep, and this passage is no different. Much of the reason for our independent nature as Christians in the U.S. comes from our self-reliance as people and as pioneers. If you think about it, uh, we grew up as pioneers. Many of our people, no matter how we got here, whether you came here um, on ships trying to escape Europe and trying to live a life as your own, or whether you came here by force, and you might have come here as indentured servants, you might have come here as slaves, but however you got to this country, this country is a very different country, all right? No matter how we got here, as people, or pioneers, or however we got here, Native American, very recently, the land we live in is unusual in that we're a hodgepodge group. We're a very diverse group in this country. We're from a wide variety of backgrounds. And in our very recent history, it took a lot of effort to live in this country. You think about it. Um, we don't understand that so much now because we have a lot of modern technology. But in our very recent past, it took a lot of effort to live. We couldn't just flip a switch and have electricity. We couldn't just go to a store and buy whatever we want. We had to grow it. We had to develop it. And as settlers began to push into the West, they had to depend upon one another to survive. It was a very difficult life, but we learned and we grew in community. We had to have a community to survive. In fact, in West Texas, when I used to live out there, I remember a friend of mine, even in the 1900s, he remarked as he read the journals, he was a priest, he read the journals of bishops, and those bishops used to have trouble finding towns. They would look for the towns, and the way they would look for the towns is they would go to the last known location of a town, and then they would begin to track down the town from there because the towns would have to move to where the oil was or to where the cattle were or to wherever, whatever was working where the water was. And these towns would work. And the people learned to work together because they had to in the desert to survive. 
It was a very difficult life. And that was as early as the early 1900s. It took a lot of sweat equity to make ends meet. And because of a capitalist system, we've had the ability to make our own way. Generally, we as Americans, if we worked hard, we could make a living and do pretty well for ourselves by the world's standards. But this has its drawbacks as well. Yes, our individualistic spirit pushed many impoverished folks west into explore. And it drew us as a community together. But so many people like this country that it also brought many nationalities together. And unlike other countries, we have so many nationalities that when many tribes come together, we had a lot of tribalism. And tribalism makes for difficulties. When one tribe meets another, they don't always understand each other. And if you don't think that causes problems, go to New York City, where the Poles met the Irish, and the Irish met the Jews, and the Jews met the Italians, and they didn't always mix well. It happens. And so we had to try to overcome it. And there were a lot of difficulties, and there still remain some of those difficulties. And as we've become less reliant on sweat equity and the need to be a community to survive, the individualism of America remains, but the community has slowly died. And the loneliness and the self-centeredness has become an increasing problem. That's really what we're struggling with in our country. This is the way of the world, and these are the concerns of the world. But in Jesus, we are called to live differently. We are called to look through tribalism. We are called to live in a different manner. We are called not to live as individualists. We are called not to live a selfish lifestyle. We are called to be radically different than those around us. How do I know this? Let's look at Galatians 3, 26 and 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and, or, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are, you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So what he says here is that in Jesus, and he goes on, we are all one body. That means while we are individuals, in Jesus we seek to become one. So for Christians, there are no tribes. It doesn't mean that we don't notice that there are differences and there are tribes on the earth. But ultimately, in Christ Jesus, and we celebrate this in communion most Sundays, right? That when we come together in the Holy Spirit, we are united as one. We are one body. And ultimately in heaven, we will be one body. And these differences on the outside are are superficial. And we are called to see beyond that. So in Christ Jesus, there is no American or Israeli or Chinese right, or Rwandan or Mexican. Or in our country right now, there is no Hispanic or Italian-American 
or African-American or Mexican-American. There is simply Christian in the church. We are called to see each other as that. And we are called to be united as believers. That's what we celebrate as communion. I mean, in communion. In the Anglican Church, we have an open table to celebrate that. We would even say in the Anglican Church, we don't see each other as Baptists and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Seventh-day Adventists or whatever. There is one church. We might worship differently, but we are still one body because in heaven we will be one body. We are all created in His image. We are all precious in His sight. We are all valuable and have individual value to God. But we were made to be part of a whole. So what Paul is speaking of in Galatians is that in baptism, we are all baptized into a church. And this, of course, means that we as believers have responsibilities to one another and that we have roles within the body. And this is what Paul is reminding his Galatian church. Why? Well, because a group of Christians in the Galatian church are Jewish Christians. They have come into his church, this group from the outside, and they have said, we are Jewish believers, we are the chosen race, and therefore we are superior to you Galatians who are pagan, or Gentile believers. You are former pagans. We are Jews. You must adopt our ways and become like us. You must adopt Old Testament practices and then you will be more perfect. You must adopt our customs, our dietary practices, our laws, and then you will become more perfect. And Paul says, this is ridiculous in chapter 3. He says, when you were saved, were you saved by circumcision? Were you saved by these practices? Or were you saved by faith? Did the Holy Spirit come upon you by these Old Testament practices? Or did He come through faith, through grace? And if the Holy Spirit came within you by these practices, then why would you go back to these practices? And he gets pretty vulgar in the first chapter on what he wishes would happen to those who would teach this. I'll encourage you to read the first chapter on what he says should happen to them. They sound religious, but it's the thinking of the world. Why? The world classifies us by the thing on the outside, by the desires of our eyes, as John says in his epistle. But God does does so by what is inside of us. We do that in churches, by the way, We classify by the desires of our eyes, don't we? How do we do that? By wealth or status in our community. We seek to place people of prominence and leadership. We rush to get to know people in the church who we think might be valuable for us to get to know, or by their outward appearance. Those who look more beautiful, right? I have to fight that all the time. I'm beautiful in appearance, right? People want to get to know me. How do I fight that? Right, Rob? It's very difficult. <laughs> this kind of thing took place in the Apostle James's community as well. Let's look at James 2, 2 and, and following. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, 
and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? That's what James is saying. We as Christians do this all the time. We make judgments on the external with, with our eyes, with our vision. That's what James is talking, or what John is talking about and James is talking about. We have this outward thing. We, we look for the outward, this lust with our eyes, this longing with our eyes. If they're richer, if they're more beautiful, if they have things, if they have power, if they have prestige, if they have the things that we want, if they look the way we want them to look, then they must be better. Whatever that category is, we look for the superficial, the things that are skin deep. Are you guilty of that? Have you been guilty of that? In your life, what do you value that is skin deep? James says, and John says, we're to be about things that are deeper. Because that's what Jesus says, and that's what the Father says. Man looks at the outward things, but God looks at the heart. That's what Samuel's about, right? We preach through that series. The Israelites want Saul as king. God picks David. He gives them Saul, and Saul is a complete failure. David, the shepherd boy, the youngest, the one out in the field, becomes the one that they need. We're called to see things with different eyes as believers. We're called to realize that living for Jesus is a radical life commitment. It's living in a community, not as individuals. It's living for one another rather than for myself. It's living under the church's authority rather than living as a rugged individual. It's a very different lifestyle. It means living humbly. It means living sacrificially. It means living gently. And it means living lovingly. You see, we're called to understand that the world's things, the things of this world, are fleeting. That's why he says, don't live for these things. That's all the list of John. Don't live for them. Why in the world would you? Because they won't last. We are the people of the king, and we live for his coming kingdom, and we are honored to be in his church. So this week, take stock of what you're living for. Think about it. Pray on it. And if you realize that you're living for things other than for him, give it to God. Pray on it. Recommit yourself to living for God. Pray and let the Holy Spirit let you give those things up. Amen.